episode 142, Finding the Healthcare Use Case. Today, I speak with Brian Yarnell from Bluestream Health. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. As Brian says, one of the biggest mistakes that healthcare executives make, regardless of whether you're in the payer or provider or health tech or any other healthcare business, is to go for a big bang strategy with a three-year time frame. Generally, you wind up with a lot of elaborate plans and not much to show for it. The best way to go is a more incremental approach. Pick a strategic direction and then simply find a related use case and solve for it. After you see how that goes, do the next right thing. That's a philosophy Brian and his crew over at Bluestream Health have deployed. And two years in, they have hundreds of customers. So clearly it's working out for them. I very much enjoyed my second conversation with Brian Yarnell today. He was on the podcast in 2015, episode 45. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Brian. Thank you. It's good to have you back. What you been up to in the past two years? I think when we talked the last time, uh, it was more of a theory than a practice in terms of the technology platform we had articulated. So the good news is uh, most of the things that we talked about in the previous episode, we've actually done. I have noticed it's sort of rare in this business that people are not pivoting or switching it up in some fashion, but you didn't pivot or switch it up very much. How are, <laughs> how are you able to identify a problem that actually had the market fit that you obviously figured out correctly? I mean, that's not easy. No, I'd say it's definitely not easy. You know, one of the things you'll notice if you do business with us is that we're not the most exciting people to work with. We're very pragmatic. You know, I see a lot of young companies creating a lot of hype and saying, we're going to swing for the fences. The reality is, is the way we look at it is that we know this is a problem. We know that across healthcare, there are telehealth companies, there are health systems that may have resources they can't get to market or may have market that has demands for resources they don't have. You know, it's kind of a common sense thing. The challenge is identifying use cases that are actionable within a short window. So we started interpreting not because it's the most exciting thing out there, but because it's ubiquitous. You know, if you look across the country, you couldn't show me a hospital that doesn't have needs for interpreting, whether it's sign language, foreign language, or some combination. So, you know, it's not the coolest, sexiest thing to do, but it's a place where we can go in and day one prove how our business is going to function in terms of the mechanics and in terms of the software. Uh, and maybe most importantly, it's a business where people are used to paying transactionally, right? If I went into a hospital and said, I can bring some of your behavioral health consults out to a third party, and it's going to cost you $200 every time you click that button, they're going to scratch their heads and say, geez, we've never done that before. But the reality is people have been paying for third-party interpreting for years. It's funny because I was going to ask you something about how you keyed into this as a problem that people would be willing to pay for. Because there's a lot of problems out there 
that, yeah, all right, they're problems, but they're clearly not a big enough problem that somebody's willing to foot a bill to solve them. So it's interesting that you selected something that people are already paying for. So because that's a big hurdle to identify a problem people are willing to pay for. Did you do that very consciously? Like, you know, you had a whiteboard somewhere and you're, you you put a column on the uh, on the whiteboard. You know, you made a little chart problems and then problems that people are already paying for that they would probably have some inertia there and we could get in on that game. I'd like to say that's the case, but the reality is, is a little bit different. Uh, my business partner, Matthew, had acquired a sign language interpreting company. So we saw firsthand that this is a viable business that people are willing to pay money for, for the services, but the delivery mechanism just didn't exist. So we sat back and we kind of had the luxury of doing this and looked at it and and said, you know, if we're going to build out a platform to solve this problem for this business where they can't effectively get their goods to market, so to speak, what's the bigger picture? So that's where we came up with this theory that, you know, we ought to be able to build a fluid exchange across all of healthcare. So we kind of had that advantage of looking at a real example before we ever put pen to paper. Do you think in hindsight that that might be a best practice, that it's probably the most frictionless or you're going to have fewer barriers if you find something that people are already paying for and you do it better, as opposed to what a lot of businesses try to do, which is come up with something kind of new and then get people to pay for it because it's more efficient or has better produces better outcomes or you know has some additive advantage. Absolutely. And you know, I'm sure you've spoken with other entrepreneurs that have experienced that firsthand. Every health system in the country or the big ones have an innovation center. You know, the reality is what that innovation center is is a catch-all for all the products that are solutions looking for problems. If you don't solve a problem that they're already paying money for, Nobody in the hospital has the budget to pay you. So it's, it's kind of a tough situation where if you invent a whole new class of product, a whole new class of service, uh, you've got to go find a customer. And the reality is those customers don't exist. You've got to create them. So if you can find an existing use case inside the healthcare system that people already have a budget for, of course, that's a path that's got a little bit less resistance. Is there any secret sauce to that end? How do you figure out that there's a use case somewhere? I mean, I I would say you have to kind of do it the old-fashioned way. You've got to go out and talk to customers. The best way to do that, frankly, is go knock on doors, go talk to people, and put that value proposition on the table or on the whiteboard. You know, it's it's kind of an old-fashioned way to do business. But if you think about it, you know, the value you deliver equals benefits minus cost. So, you know, is there an actual benefit to spending incremental money in what you're doing? And, you know, a lot of times what you'll find is that Startup companies don't really think about that. They just want a user or they want a customer. But if the customer is not willing to write you a check, it's it's not necessarily useful in terms of planning how your business is going to grow. <laughs> yeah, there's that. And even further, if they're not willing to write you a check, th- there's a difference between willing to write you a check and willing to try it out. So I could see how it would totally suck to to do something as a pilot for someone who was willing to do it for free, but then ultimately to discover that it's not valuable enough to pay for. Yeah, and a lot of startup companies make that mistake. You know, if we're going to pilot a, pr- a product with somebody or a platform with somebody, we're going to write a commercial contract day one, and it's going to have two phases. You know, the initial phase or the initial period of that contract is going to be a pilot period, and it's going to last 90 days, let's say. 
there's going to be language in that contract that says unless the following doesn't happen, meaning we don't hit these evaluation criteria, it's going to auto-renew into the first renewal phase, which is a commercial contract for X number of dollars. And it's very difficult to get that contract signed because it is a real contract and it has teeth. And if you put something like that in front of a potential customer, what you're going to find out is that you know, 80% of the customers you thought were customers don't have a budget or don't have the authority to sign a contract. And you know, it may be painful to learn that up front, but it's much better than the example that you talked about where I go through the gyrations, I run a pilot program, and then get to the end and find out this was never a customer anyway. Is there any advice that you have relative to overcoming that hurdle? You know, like, is there a particular job title that you talk to or maybe a a psychographic or a kind of institution? How do you give yourself the best opportunity for success when you're trying to figure that out? I mean, I hate to say it, but one of the biggest pieces of advice I would say is look outside the New York area. You know, the New York area in terms of the institutions here, a lot of them are not for profit. And a lot of them make a lot of money on grants and things like that and aren't as focused as a for-profit organization in terms of things that might move the needle. So, you know, I would say be willing to look elsewhere in the country and, you know, don't be shy about asking for money. You know, it's, it's one of the hardest things you're going to do as an entrepreneur, but ultimately that's what you're supposed to be doing is you've got to get into a room with somebody and say, you know, this is a great idea we just talked about. If everything goes well, do you have the authority to write a check for this. And if so, let's talk about what's a realistic version of, you know, a payment plan. You intrigued me just there when you were talking about not-for-profit hospitals. Do you mean they're not willing to move the needle as far as profitability goes, or they're not willing to move the needle as far as making improvements? You know, like they're just a little bit less motivated to improve patient outcomes due to, for whatever reason. I think it's more the latter, and I don't think I would frame it up as some sort of malicious view of the world. It's just a reality. You know, as, as much as you'd like to believe that people become doctors to save the world, ultimately people do a job and they get paid to do it. And, you know, we have customers out of the Nashville area that have world-class doctors that are on call 24-7 to answer requests for home care aides in rural areas that are visiting home hospice, home care, SNF. Um, and these people are jumping at the opportunity to answer those calls. Uh, In New York, we've done some pilot programs where doctors will literally say, it's not my problem, it's somebody else's. You know, it's not that these are bad people. The reality is, is that those folks out of Nashville are getting a piece of the revenue that that company generates when they're able to prevent a readmission. In New York, they're getting paid the same thing whether or not the outcomes change. This has been said over and over again that, you know, we practice reimbursement-based care in this country. And and that seems to trickle down to the physician level, it seems. You know, I'd always been thinking about it at the organization level. You know, like if you change reimbursement, then the practices as an organization will change. But it seems like that if you offer the right incentives to physicians, that you're going to get quicker behavior change, which I have heard there's some negatives to that as well as positives. You know, you get into some moral hazard areas where a physician is doing things because they see a cha-ching as opposed to what's right for the patient. So you got to make sure that everything's very aligned there or things can go off the rails. No, I think you're right. And I think that's where, you know, a model like we're doing, which is effectively an exchange model, makes a lot of sense because the physicians are not in a position to generate demand. They're in a position to respond to demand. You know, to give you a good example, we're going live within the next week or two at a major health system in an academic center on the East Coast. 
and they are equipping their practice manager, their transplant doctors, care navigators, coordinators with the ability to take inbound referrals on demand. And they're not out there paying doctors or advertising that we've got the best transplant center on the East Coast. All they're doing is saying, look, we've got expertise. We're willing to offer it for free to the community of physicians in a geographic radius because, you know, number one, we're nice people. But the reality is, is that they want to foster that brand engagement at the point of care. And the point of care in that context is in a physician's office in a community. Sounds like the other use case that you've realized for your technology is more of a clinical one, that there are only so many individuals in this country who are experts in, you know, transplant care or, you know, some other very tight specialty, subspecialty even, and making those individuals available. I'm not going to say on demand because maybe it's a little harder than that. Um, no, no, it's, it's literally on demand. I mean, that, that's one of the premises of the Bluestream platform is that it is transactional in a real sense. You know, there, there's no scheduled interaction. It's you need an expertise, you push a button, and you're going to get it. The challenge there is finding experts that are willing and able to get on the system and be on demand. And to your point, finding use cases where that even makes sense. You know, I'll give you another real example. We've got a customer that's going live in you know, several healthcare organizations right now delivering on-demand behavioral health. And, you know, you're probably saying, well, that's been done before. There's all sorts of telehealth apps for behavioral health. What's different about this is that it's transactional, meaning that they're going into emergency rooms, they're going into pre-intake in hospitals, and they're giving nurses and triage nurses and doctors the ability to push a button and do a behavioral health consult on a patient. And what that does is that speeds up the throughput in these hospitals in a real sense. You know, if you look at how many beds are taken up by people that don't necessarily have an acute physical issue, but they're there because they couldn't be assessed in time to get intervention outside the hospital. You know, you're looking at you know, thousands and thousands of dollars a day that are wasted, you know, dealing with patients that would be better served by a behavioral health professional. So the hospital is willing to actually write a check, so to speak, to push that button because number one, they're helping a patient directly at the point of intervention. And number two, they're freeing up beds for people that need them because they've had trauma and other issues. What does that look like? And, and I, I have to admit, I misapprehended what you were going to say, because I thought you were going to say that you were doing behavioral health consults with the patient. You know what I mean? Like in the emergency room, you, you'd kind of do it. Someone would be doing a telehealth visit in the emergency room with a patient. But then you took a turn that I didn't expect because you said you're doing these behavioral health consults with nurses who then in turn, I'm assuming, are going out and talking to the patient. Did I understand that correctly? Um, almost. Okay. <laughs> I think you're getting to the right point, though. We do not count on a patient driving the interaction. We count on a care professional driving the interaction, standing next to the patient. So in a case like you just described, it is a nurse pushing that button saying, I need an on-demand uh, behavioral health consult with a physician. The patient is standing next to the nurse or sitting next to the nurse. Because I'm sure you've dealt with other folks in the telehealth business that'll tell you that the adoption rate for any product where you count on the patient pushing that button themselves is abysmal. What we focused on is equipping every provider of healthcare that's dealing with a patient at the point of care to be the smartest person in the room. And the way we do that is by giving them on-demand access to the experts that they need. It's not about building a catch-all telehealth app that you, you, know, you hand to your mother when she's in home care. It's about equipping the home care aide with a dashboard that says, look, these are the resources I have at my fingertips to help this woman age in place or help this person recuperate. 
mental health and behavioral health is a force multiplier there. I know that nobody listening to this podcast is going to disagree with me. I could see also that it's sort of a safety net, you know, like if you're dealing with a person and you're just like, I don't even know what to do here, that at the press of a button, you get kind of a visiting angel who can come in and give you a hand. Is that sort of what it looks like? Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. That part of it's as simple as you described, right? You push a button, you know, before you push that button, we're going to give you an estimated wait time to get that resource. The real complexity is behind the scenes in terms of what is the right resource. You know, most organizations are going to have some of their own behavioral health professionals or social workers they might want to hit first. They might want to triage this out to qualified third parties that are credentialed into the health system, right? So you want one button that does a whole lot of things behind the scenes in terms of getting the right person directly in front of the patient and the nurse. Are there any lessons that you've learned along the way in making that magic happen? I'd say the biggest thing, you know, if you think about it, our customers are not always the health systems directly. A lot of times the customers are third parties that use our platform to deliver their services. For instance, that behavioral health organization is a customer of ours, and they're going in and selling into hospitals and health systems using the BlueStream platform. What we've seen that is is very encouraging, I guess, to our business model is that when you engage a health system and say, we're going to help you put your own staff on this platform and utilize them to the fullest extent possible before you start spending money with a third party. Uh, that's really engaging. You know, we've seen some of the more traditional telehealth players go in there and say, ah, you don't need your doctors, use ours. And it puts you in kind of an adversarial relationship where you're viewed as someone that is selling resources as opposed to enabling a process. Why would a behavioral health or any organization use your platform In the example that you explained earlier, you're going out to a whole bunch of uh, translators that work for various companies. If your customer is the supplier, then you're not inviting their competitors as well. You know, like now the contract is owned by that one particular company and therefore you're only going to get that one particular company's experts. I think you've got to take a more economic view of it. right. So if you think about this in terms of macroeconomics. Let's use this behavioral health company as a real example. So they go in and they sell to a customer. They own that customer relationship, and it's up to them if they want to let a second behavioral health company come through that portal when the nurse pushes the button. Now, you would think logically, why would they ever want to do that? The reality is is that their job as a business is to sell 100% of the resources they have on staff. So if you think about the time of a behavioral health specialist, Their goal is to be 100% utilized. Uh, You can't do that unless you overcommit in terms of your availability, right? These folks are going to go in and they're going to say, of course, we're going to be available 24-7. We can always take your calls. And they would much rather spill over 5, 10, 20% of those calls to another third party that they have a relationship with than to count on 80% utilization or overstaff their own bench. If you look at it in kind of a macroeconomic model, there's this idea of comparative advantage where you've got an organization that's good at managing a relationship, managing expectations with a company, and they're getting the lion's share of that revenue coming through the front door. And then they will share the additional revenue with other third parties. And I'm sure they're going to take a piece of the margin for doing that. So it winds up benefiting everybody because folks that are not quite as good at utilizing their bench are going to have excess capacity that have been consumed by other folks that are a little bit better in terms of maximizing their utilization. It's just another example of 
something that I have heard repeated many times on this podcast, that collaboration is going to be the essential skill moving forward. And this seems like another example of that. From the hospital's perspective or from the provider's perspective, they often say that technology, and I'm just just quoting this, so don't take this the wrong way, you know, technology is sometimes the easy part, but actually getting adoption or adaption, getting people to adapt to a new technology and change workflows to accommodate it, for example, is very difficult. What's the hardest part that as a provider organization, I need to figure out in order to be able to level up and use a tool like yours? If all you're going to do is consume resources, that's very easy. You know, you can go into a hospital, you can give people tablets or iPads or access to a laptop, and they can view a dashboard and they can start demanding services from external third parties. So that we've seen happens very easily. Where it gets challenging is when you take somebody like a doctor or an in-house interpreter and you ask them to make themselves available to take on-demand consults, because now you're introducing a facet of their job that never existed before. So for a third party like these interpreting companies or the behavioral health company or wound care physicians that are used to working in that context, it's really easy. For somebody like a doctor that's used to doing what he does all day and then going home to be with his family... And telling that person, hey, you know what, the health system would be better off if you committed two hours at the end of your day to be on call for virtual visits, you know, that's a challenge. And that's something where you've really got to think about how do you incentivize these people to be involved in that process. And sometimes, like the case of these transplant organizations, they're inherently incentivized because there's high value to them taking those referrals. In other cases, this is seen as, you know, there's more work on my plate and what do I get for it? And, And I think that's going to be the biggest challenge. Just going back to the first thing, and then I have a question based on what you just said. How do I know that there is an expert available for transplants? I mean, like I could see that there'd be some learning curve there. Like I can go to my computers or like a drop down menu, like here's all the things that you can get on demand. You you know what I mean? Um, So that's exactly what happens. It's enough just to make that URL, you know, like somebody just sticks it on or about, you know, there's a desktop shortcut or something or or from a provider organization standpoint, does the provider organization need to have an in-service or something and say, hey, we've got this new tool or send a memo? Like, what are the best ways you've you've seen to socialize the availability of this throughout an organization? In terms of the provider side that are, you know, that are just making requests, so think of these as the nurses and doctors on the floor of a hospital or, or home care aides visiting patients. In that context, the training is really easy. I mean, typically, it's one click. They see the dashboard. They see what's available, and they'll make some requests. So we'll do in-services with those folks, or they'll do it themselves after we train the trainer, and that's typically a two-minute training. You know, we'll, getting somebody logged in and able to push a button and see the other person on the other end of the, other end of the video is really easy. Uh, the more challenging piece is training doctors and other clinical folks to be on call and, and available. Uh, and typically, what we'll see is that people don't really understand the idea of this real-time availability. You know, a lot of people are stuck in this modality of call trees. You know, okay, it's going to ring my phone five times, and it's going to ring someone else's phone. And that's not what we do. You know, we will actually see if you're available, predict your availability. And if we know you're there, we're going to pester you until you pick up. Um, And we might bring three people, five people, 10 people simultaneously. But ultimately what happens when we first go live is that people do silly things like mark themselves available and say they're going to be available for the next eight hours, whether or not you see me at the computer. And if you tell us that, we're going to believe it. We're going to try to find you. So you'll see somebody's phone ringing at three in the morning. The other alternative is that, you know, people forget to log out. And now we're actually making automated phone calls or emails 
to the person that manages the clinic saying, hey, you've got three doctors that are online that say they're available for on-demand consults, and we've got a two-minute queue backed up of patients waiting to talk to them, what went wrong? You know, there's not much you could do there except for try to articulate to people that this is what's going to happen and then just stay on top of them as the system goes live. I would say the good news is we have real-time views of all that, so we can see it coming. You know, we'll, we'll get online and we'll actually look and see, okay, here's how the queue's stacking up. These are the folks that are getting notifications and not responding. It's definitely a learning process. We had talked about the patient adoption rate of, of telehealth is 9% or something like that. And I was actually just looking at the hype cycle of apps, oddly, yesterday. And it was saying just how people will try something, they'll download an app to their phone and then never actually use it. Is that something that you also see with these physicians that maybe they'll, they raise their hand and say, sure, I'll give it a go. But then once reality strikes and they realize that they have to change the way that they're practicing medicine to some extent, people become less enchanted. I think it depends on the type of organization. Like I said earlier, the places where we've seen the best adoption by the physicians are organizations where the physician has a vested interest in delivering better, quicker care. And where we've seen this become a struggle are places where it's just more work for the physician. So there's nothing technologically challenging about using the platform, but someone may not really like the idea of a patient potentially seeing them at three in the morning. You've got to get buy-in. It's not so much about training someone to use the technology or you know, making sure they're able to open the app. It's more about starting at the executive level and getting buy-in that this is the way we're going to start doing business. And, and that's the real challenge. Um, and that's why you know, we started with areas of healthcare where we know that this is already the mindset. You know, we think that it's going to evolve to other things as well. But for us, that's going to be the challenge is evangelizing that view that you know, physicians and other healthcare professionals ought to be available 24-7 and ought to be happy about doing it. And there's only so much we can do as a small company to change that. Yeah. And that seems to be a trend line that a number of us, anybody that's involved in pay-for-value is following, that, you know, consumers want convenience and everybody's working between nine to five. So if office hours for physicians are nine to five, that's not convenient. <laughs> is this something, though, that I guess it would depend on what specialty we're talking about here. But, you know, is, is it an option for a physician to say, you know what, I'm going to take Monday off, but then I'm going to work 16 hours on Thursday so that you can get some of those off hours? Like, how are people solving for this without having physicians work 60 hours a week? What we're seeing, you know, specifically around the physicians are that we can integrate with an existing on-call schedule. So most organizations will have an on-call physician in off hours. So if you're doing something like a readmissions prevention program with a skilled nursing facility, uh, I would hope they've already got a physician every night of the week ready to take calls. The question is, how do we integrate with that scheduling system to make sure that we're expecting to see the same people? Where, where you start to run into problems is, is that that on-call physician may not be getting any calls most nights of the week because it's difficult to track them down. When we increase availability, through this seamless access, now you start to run into supply problems. And you've got to start questioning, is one on-call physician enough? Or do I route to a third party? Or do I put two physicians on call? You know, whether or not people are excited about doing this, somebody's got to pay the bill for that. So ultimately, that trickles down into the actual payment model for healthcare delivery. So you, you hit up on this a little bit, but the idea that you know, if I'm involved in a bundled payment program or a you know, value-based payment program, that's relatively easy to do. Uh, because now you can actually see you know, what is the benefit in a real sense to keeping these patients 
in a rehab facility or in a SNF rather than send them to the hospital? And is it worth paying two doctors to avoid a $10,000 hit? And the answer is hopefully yes. The problem is, is that a lot of organizations don't really have a good understanding of how the payments flow from the origination of that care episode through the end of it. And they also might not have an understanding, you know, if you're just relying on a call center and people are getting a busy signal or hanging up or whatever, you, you also might not have the data to understand what the demand actually is. I think you're right. And we, you know, we saw that ourselves. When we first went live with foreign language interpreting and we started adding languages one by one, we had no idea what the demand was for one of our larger customers. They started adding, I think it was Vietnamese they added. And they scheduled these folks to be available between certain hours. They had no idea what the demand was because in the hours where no one was logged in, we would deactivate that button automatically and say nobody's available. The big question was, well, how many people want interpreting when that button's disabled? What we did for those folks is we actually lit up that button when we didn't see any of their interpreters online and let their customers click it, knowing that they wouldn't get an answer. But we would give them an exaggerated wait time. We'd say it's a five to 10 minute wait for Vietnamese. Do you still want a video consult? And when somebody clicked that, we would actually generate emails and voice calls to the people that managed the base of interpreters. And they'd run around like crazy trying to track someone down the next five minutes. But what that let us do was actually build models where we saw what the demand was across a 24 hour spectrum, as opposed to just what these people guessed might happen between nine to five. You know, you mentioned bundled payments, you know, because there's a big risk there. If no one's available, then maybe that patient's going to go to the hospital across town and get out of the and then obviously the hospital that's responsible for that patient in a bundle is going to wind up paying. There's a bunch of bad things that can happen if you're not realizing when your patients need assistance and being available to assist that I'm sure is interesting times. I think you're right. And I think for us kind of evolutionarily, that's where we want to start to focus a bit more. So we already do some of that work regarding readmissions prevention for post-acute. I think we want to start looking a little bit more at some of these things like orthopedic rehab for something like CJR, joint replacement. We know that patients are high likelihood to actually engage in a post-care plan, but don't necessarily have the tools to engage with the people that have the most vested interest in making sure they get better. We think that there's a big application for platforms like Bluestream to connect the organizations doing things like uh, joint replacement with patients that are out in rehab or at home instead of actually walking back into a doctor's office. If you're going to give advice to a provider organization on either side of the equation there, but what do you think that provider organizations really need to be doing right now in order to maximize their ability to care for patients in a value-based world? I mean, for me, you know, and I think, you know, I, I sit on a number of boards and I, I'm a mentor to a number of other technology organizations and I work with big uh, healthcare organizations. For me, the, the biggest issue I see a lot of healthcare organizations doing is, is that they try to create these strategies that are, you know, the big bang approach. You know, if we all get in a room with a lot of smart people for enough time, we're going to come up with a plan that gets us where we want to be in the next 48 months. Uh, the reality is, is that I don't think anybody knows where healthcare is going to be in the next 48 months. And even if you did have that clairvoyance, it's not a smart way to implement the technology program. You know, what you'd be much better off doing is understanding where you'd like to be in the next 48 months, but then backing that down into things that are actionable this quarter, next quarter, you know, over the next 12 months, and biting off some of these bite-sized chunks 
always bearing in mind that you're building towards this bigger vision. And it's tough to do because you run a significant risk of implementing products or strategies that are not extensible, meaning that they can't connect into this framework that you're generating. So it's a little bit more work overall. But at the end of that 48-month period, you wind up with a platform that actually works and has actually adapted over the four-year period to be where it ought to be in four years. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, at the end of the time period, you actually have something <laughs> as opposed to, yeah, exactly. This this strategy that with a lot of cooks in the kitchen that kind of never actually happens. So if someone's interested in learning more about Bluestream and, and what you're up to, Brian, where would you direct them? They can check out our website, bluestreamhealth.com, or uh, I'd encourage anybody to reach out to me directly. And where might they reach out to you directly? My email is bryarnell at bluestreamhealth.com. That's B-Y-A-R-N-E-L-L at bluestreamhealth.com. It has been a pleasure again to have you on the podcast, Brian. All right. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at relentlesshealthvalue.com. If you visit the website, relentlesshealthvalue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.